As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ladies and gentlemen, you are now entering the Second Big Comics Podcast. Starring Mark Clare and Rimzel Martinez. Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream. Make him the nerdiest co-host I've ever seen. I hope he's got lots of comic book knowledge. I think that's all that he learned in college, Mr. Sandman. Welcome, everybody, back to another edition of Second Print Comics. I'm, of course, referring to my dream co-host here, Mr. Remzo W. Martinez. Remzo, what's up? <laughs> bum, 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 doing fine. Just fine right now. It's great to be back with you and everyone else for another week. You know, we it, it, it's so funny, and I know I've said this a million times already, but we are closer to episode 100 than we are true. episode true one. for nine weeks. And that is, it, it, it blows my mind. It's a weird and wild world. We're rocking and rolling and we're jumping into this dreamscape with all of you at home, listening to us with your children, which makes you a better parent than most. This is a true thing. We have several listeners that actually do listen to it with their kids and read the books with their kids. And I think that's freaking awesome. Except for when we get a little raunchy, which happens from time to time. But that's, that's their job as parents. Those kids are going to learn eventually. Well, they would rather, I would rather kids learn bad words than us from us than anyone else. Okay, actually, here's a funny story. You know, you, uh, you know Stephen Kent, right? Um, from Beltway Banthas. He, uh, he's, uh, he, he's a big Star Wars guy. And, um, I'll take your word I, for it. Okay, yeah. So Stephen Kent, uh, he, he's, he's, in our, he's in our secret circle. Um, anyway, I was having dinner with him and his wife before I moved out to uh, Wisconsin. And he has a daughter who's about nine, I think. And she's really into like Steve Irwin and snakes and stuff. Like she'll go out and like find insects and stuff. I mean, it's things I don't want to go near. 
And like, I, I was just telling her about like, you know, some of the crazy things I've seen in DC, like, you know, rats carrying like a cheeseburger by the Watergate hotel and like, you know, sewer snakes and stuff like that. And then, you know, she, she was talking about like cotton mouths, which I guess are uh, native to Virginia and the Potomac river and stuff like that. They're like water snakes. I'm like, wow, that sounds like the crackhead of snakes. And she's like, what's a crackhead? I'm like, you don't know what a crackhead <laughs> is. And her parents looked at me. Let's go for a walk. I'll, I'll introduce you to some. Yeah, don't you tell my don't you tell her daughter what a crackhead is. So I'm like trying to like jump around. I'm like a crackhead is somebody who loves drugs a bit too much. It's better they learn it from you than from a crackhead. I, I'm like the Mister Rogers of teaching kids about the hood. <laughs> Tie their shoes and everything, huh? I have no clue where this is going. Yeah, me neither. No, we should just get into things before it crackheads. Goes I'll teach your kid about them. All right. On the next uh, on our next bonus episode, speaking of bonus episodes, actually, if you think about it, you mentioned we're closer to 100. If you add up all the bonus episodes we've done behind the old paywall, we've probably done 100 or more, I'd say at this point. Easily. Speaking of which, you can listen to all those bonus shows by heading over to our Patreon and supporting this program at patreon.com slash second print pod. We don't just beg for money. We beg for money and give you tons of stuff back. Loads of bonus content, uh, monthly calls with the hosts with Remzo and I graphic novels these are all at different levels but you can get all the audio content for as little as the five measly smackers a month and frankly it's hard to find much a much better deal in the in the podcasting uh, bonus content world if you ask me crackheads won't even take a five dollar bill they at least want a 20 exactly and i i think we have a couple crackheads in the patreon so if they can afford it you can too check it out help support us and help us expand our mission of helping others to read comics and change the world one story at a time that's our mission. That's why we're here. I mean, listen, people, we, we've we've distracted children from their homework. We've potentially ruined a couple marriages because people are spending more money on comics than, you know, like household expenses. I wish that was a joke, but it, it is likely true in at least a couple of cases. Yeah, we can't be legally held responsible for your bad life choices. But if you're going to make bad life choices, make them with us. Look, better you spend it on comics than crack, right? Yeah. Crackheads. Now, if you can afford both, all well and good. But if you have to choose. Yeah. Us or crackheads. <laughs> all right. Well, I don't know how I'm going to transition into this book, so I'm just going to say. You have to tie it into crackheads somehow. Well, crackheads, I often see them, you know, cracked out on the street. I'm not even joking. I'm in here in Los Angeles. I see them all the time. Oh, okay. Okay. How about this? Mark, what's the weirdest dream you've ever had? For me, I, I have this weird thing where I have these vivid dreams and then I wake up and I remember them so clearly for about 10 seconds. And then they just like they zap out of my mind altogether. But there is one dream. There is a recurring dream that I had for years and years and years. It's this dream. And it's partially based on something that did occur in college where I kind of like my senior year, my last semester, I only needed like six credits or something. So I only took six credits, which is like two classes. And I was so, you know, I had senioritis big time. I was, I was already, you know, I, I was already done. I was already, there's no way I wasn't going to graduate. So I didn't even take those six credits very seriously. But one of them was like a big TV production class, like one of the last ones I, I had to take. And I actually missed like three weeks of that class towards the end of the year 
for probably no really good reason. I was probably smoking crack or something. And uh, so I think it, the dream comes from that feeling that I had in some way, but it had, had probably had a deeper meaning, but I was basically in school. Sometimes it's like college, sometimes it's high school, but I, basically I'm just there and I've missed so much time of school that I'm totally unprepared. I don't know what's going on in class. I don't know what I'm supposed to study. I don't know anybody. I'm totally lost. And I had that reoccurring dream probably a couple times a week for years and years and years. And uh, I won't say when it stopped, but it may have stopped after I got out of a certain relationship a couple years ago. So. <laughs> that'll that'll do it. My my weirdest dream is when I was on this new medication about four years ago, and they told you, I mean, they, they told people who took it, it's like you're gonna have some like sketchy dreams and shit like that. So I took a nap in like the middle of the day that lasted four hours, and I had this like vivid moment where it's like I'm falling into like the abyss of a wormhole in space and there's nothing around me but then like all these random colors start shooting around I hear like so I'm like what the fuck is that like that's horrifying so I see this thing coming from the, the middle of the wormhole like flying towards me and I'm like oh my god like Jesus and no it was it was a dolphin that was in like a police uniform <laughs> It was, it was like a dolphin cop, but here's the thing though. And, and I just keep hearing like, eh, eh. so it's like coming towards me. I'm like, fuck, like, is he coming to me? Like, what's he telling me? Like, am, am, am I under arrest? Like, I don't, I don't understand what's happening. And he flew past. Did me. I violate dolphin law in space? Like, I don't know. Like he just kept <laughs> flying past me and then it just went. Eh. So it kept getting like silent, silent. And then I kept going past him. and I'm just like, did, did he know I was there? Like, did he see me or did I just see him? And it's like, why wasn't I worth talking to? Like, why would, why, why are we the only two things here? And he didn't even bother like stopping by me or could he control himself? Could I control myself? So I woke up like sweating and like, just like, you know, having an existential crisis. It's like, why didn't dolphin cop even stop to say hi or something? So I just felt like really, really perplexed for like the next couple of days. But yeah, that's the, that's the weirdest one I've ever had. Are you sure you didn't smoke DMT? Dude, I wish I did at least. That would have made a lot more sense. When we're off air, I'm going to need you to send me the name of those pills and the exact dosage you took, because that sounds fun to me. Hashtag dolphin cop. (laughs) All right. Well, now I can smoothly transition into the subject of today's show. Uh, We are going to be discussing Neil Gaiman's Sandman. That's right. Hence my little ditty at the top of the show. And uh, before we dive into this thing, Remzo... What was your prior exposure to this book before preparing for this episode? Had you read this before? I had not read this completely before. The first time I was ever aware of uh, the Sandman was in a History Channel documentary in 2006 called The History of Comics. I think you could watch the full thing on YouTube. And as they're discussing the evolution of comic books, they bring up uh, Sandman in the age of, you know, more like your transcendental, like real trippy adult like comics like the Watchmen, Dark Knight Returns, stuff like that, because it, it signified a point in comics where like, you know, the Alan Moores are coming in and folks like that. And, you know, these these things that were almost always known for kids are now taking a new life of their own as now they're really stepping into the realm of actually being considered literature. So I was always kind of intimidated by it because I thought, you know, this 
this is really for like adults or this is like really horrifying. It's too much for me. I was a kid at the time. And, and I also realized that a lot of the people who were comic book collectors who also read Sandman, like they always, I always felt like there was like a certain level of elitism to it. Like if you're ranking the comic book nerds, it's like, I was more like at the mid tier of the collector sphere, but like the people that read Sandman were like, what, you've never read Sandman. You don't understand all these little intricacies about Neil Gaiman and everything else. What's wrong with you? So I always felt like it was a little bit off putting. Uh, you know, I think earlier on in the show, I, I said the same thing about uh, Swamp Thing at certain points. It's like, you know, when you start getting into like all these extra themes that are typically not familiar to comic book readers, especially, you know, the the, the people that were growing up as kids reading it, it, it was really intimidating. So really, I didn't uh, really jump into it until I read the audiobook version of the graphic novel while I listened to it about a year and a half ago. And if you've not picked that up on Audible, it's an Audible exclusive. It's amazing. It's got James McAvoy. It's got um, a whole wide cast of actors who voice the character. So it's like an audio drama. It's absolutely fantastic. But yeah, uh, I admire... Um, Sandman, but I've always kind of done so from afar. All right. Well, this one for me, um, I'd say it's, it, I probably got into Sandman. Mm, I'm going to guess sometime in the mid nineties. And this came out in, I believe, uh, 1989, January, 1989, if my yeah. memory is correct. And, uh, you know, I got into the comics in the early nineties and I, at, at first I was just into the straight up superhero stuff, Spider-Man, X-Men, Batman, Superman, Fantastic Four. These were, these were my jams. And then as I've discussed several times, I became, I got really into image, um, mostly Savage Dragon was my, was my number one big into spawn and, uh, getting into image kind of made me realize that, oh, not everything is just this straightforward superhero stuff, even though image was mostly superhero stuff, at least in the beginning. Uh, it was definitely a different kind of superhero and and reading image stuff led me to Valiant, which led me to just really expand my scope and my ideas of what type of stuff I wanted to read in the medium. And it was only probably a few years in, uh, you know, probably a few years into my comic book fandom that I started to seek out some of the other works that I had heard about that I had read about as being like kind of classics. And Sandman, the series was still ongoing as at the time, uh, but I actually went back and got I don't think they're the original issues that I have. I think there's some kind of like uh, vertical vertigo masters reprints, but I, I bought them sometime in the 90s. So, the, so I have they're not so they're not tradebacks. They're, I don't know. I don't have tradebacks. I actually have like complete issues at home of the first, oh, wow. I think maybe first eight to 10 issues or so, but I've, I've since read many of the others in tradeback form too. Not the whole series. I still have not read the entire series, so I would like to go back and complete it the whole time. But uh, as you know, these are not, it's not really quick reads per se. Like I, like I've discussed with before, like with Alan Moore, uh, Neil Gaiman is a writer. He is a writer first and foremost, and he happens to write books that have pictures in them. So there's a lot of words, uh, yeah, I guess you could say, but um, and, and that's one reason that this was a little intimidating to get started on, especially knowing this first story we're going to look at, Preludes and Nocturne Turns. It is eight issues, and you know, a few weeks ago we talked about how we really wanted to clamp things down a little bit, try to tighten up the podcast a little bit, try to stick to four to six issues for most episodes, but here it's just not possible. You kind of got to complete the arc. This is the suppository of comic book essential reading. You can't always do it all at once, but sometimes you just got to pucker up, squeeze them cheeks, get a little, you know, Vaseline in there and just shove it. Just shove it until you get your medicine. Because if you want to be a hardcore collector, if you want to be the king of the nerds at the at the cool kids table, you got to you got to just read Sandman. And that means just like getting that getting that thumb up there and just shoving it. 
That's an interesting analogy, almost as interesting as the crackhead analogy from earlier. Uh, but I would agree. Analogy, an odd analogy aside, I would agree. This is, it's essential. I don't know if it's essential reading. It might depend on your taste, but we'll get to our scores at the end. But uh, it is, uh, it's essential. It's something to know about. I think if you're a comic book fan and if you want to be, um, you know, if you want to be sort of an elitist comic book fan, if you want to know all about this medium, this is truly uh, a story to at least have, not, not necessarily this particular story, but a series to know about in some way i would say uh because it is really a, an all-time acclaim i think it is actually it is actually an award-winning uh work uh by neil gaiman here so it's it's critically acclaimed i guess they say so i don't know if that actually means award-winning but it was it's actually one of the few graphic novels uh to ever make it onto the new york times bestseller list do you know what do you have any guesses on what some of the others are there's three others watchman get at least one watchman is one yep watchman and i'm cheating i've got the wiki um, in front of me can, can you give me a hint Let's see. I can give you a hint. One of them is from DC. Another one from DC. Another one from DC. Another one involves uh, rodents. Oh, mouse. Yep. That's another one. One left. And V for Vendetta. Close. Mm. Not a bad guess. That's a pretty good guess. Actually, the other one is The Dark Knight Returns, believe it or not. I was going to say The Dark Knight Returns, but I I always thought that V for Vendetta was the one. Okay. That makes sense. Well, you got two out of three. That's impressive. Yeah. I have to say, that's impressive. Uh, but yeah, this is, a, a, I guess, a critically acclaimed work in, in every sense of the words. And uh, well, with that being said, I guess we'll just dive right in. But before we even get inside this book, there's something I need to point out. And I, I usually don't go on too much about the covers of books uh, on this show, but these covers are by, what is his name again? Dave McKean. Yes, Dave McKean. The covers on these books are freaking beautiful. They're just absolute masterful works of art and uh that that's just the first the most striking thing to me the art is so just i don't even know the word for for the art of these of these covers but they're encapsulating i guess you could say um and these are like i want these as posters uh, on my wall i mean they're just absolutely stunning these covers it's like what the goth kids used to doodle <laughs> yeah it's 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 goth kid doodles in you know Slightly finer, more refined form. I guess you could say that. But. Yeah, fancy goth kid doodles. <laughs> there you go. Fancy goth kid doodles. So once you get past this first fancy goth kid doodle in issue one here, this issue is called Sleep of the Just. The story arc is called Preludes and Nocturnes, written by Neil Gaiman, art by our friend. He doesn't know he's our friend. I've never met him, but he's our friend. Sam Keith, of course, the creator, the writer, the artist of The Max, which we looked at back in. Do you have a guess, Remzo? I have it in front of me, so I know. Episode 15? Not bad. 18. 18. Ooh, that Not was close. Shared. I feel like Sam Keith would be friends with us. I feel like he wouldn't block us on Twitter. I don't like think a slew he would. Of, like a slew of writers who are just <laughs> not cool people. Like all of my other heroes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like i like this comic i'm gonna tweet the writer oh the writers blocked me what the hell yeah it happens uh, it happens go to okay. patreon to hear that bitching session <laughs> is that where we talked about that i don't even that's, remember anymore. that's where that's where i know i've talked about i've dedicated entire episodes to just the, these cry screaming sessions why did so and so block me I wanted to read Static Shock. <laughs> each of us are blocked by at least uh, at least one comic writer each, for sure. I swear yeah. to God, we're nice people if you're just hearing us for the first time. 
I think we are. I, th- I mean, yeah, sure. We talk about crackheads a lot. Um, sometimes we're being chased by dolphin cops, and, but are, are not chased at even worse. That was a serious nightmare. Speaking of nightmares, though, and the dreamscape, we're going to dive right in here. And our story begins. I should say it's it's the art is by Sam Keith. In case I forget later, Sam Keith actually leaves this book. Uh, I think we actually mentioned this in the Max uh, episode, but Sam Keith is on this book for four issues. And then the inker, Mike Drindenberg, Drindenberg, Mike Drindenberg takes over uh, as the artist. Um, so in case I forget to mention that later, that's what happens in issue five, just so everybody knows. But um, yeah, I mean, we start off here. Our story starts off on in, in June 6th, June 6th, 1916, in a little place called Witch Cross, England. And uh, we are seeing this uh, gentleman, Dr. Hathaway who's visiting this dude named uh, Burgess. Burgess is this bald, creepy-looking dude who lives in this big mansion that uh, has a really creepy, uh, satanic-looking door knocker, has really creepy artifacts and such inside, and um, all of this. And we don't really know what's going on here uh, exactly just yet, but he's, he's basically given this book uh, by this Hathaway guy, and um, we don't exactly know what the book's for. We'll find out in a bit. But before that, we have to go into a little dreaming montage and we basically see um well we see various characters that we're meeting like kind of having different kinds of dreams uh one of which is a character named unity kincaid um we'll see well she'll be mentioned in this story before a little bit uh, i think in later in this issue a couple other issues uh but she actually becomes i believe if my memory serves me correctly she becomes um a character later on that we, and, you know, beyond this story. Um, so she doesn't matter as much here, but I, I'm pretty sure unless I'm making this up, which is always possible. I think she come, becomes more of a character down the road. Um, but essentially we go back to this guy Burgess's house. He is uh, with his little son here. I think his son is Alex and they are, they have this book. They're going downstairs in, into the basement where they've got um, a bunch of dudes in robes, uh, basically about to do some sort of satanic looking ritual of some kind. And what happens? They basically, they, they, they summon this something or other. We don't exactly know what. He says, I summon you in the name of the old lords, Namtar, Alatu, Morax, Nabirius, Klesh, Vipar, Maimon. We summon and they all say, come, come, come. Come That's from the dark, they call you. <laughs> Remzo, now it's really not for kids. Uh, Remzo, from the dark, they call you. Into the dark, they call you. Coin and song, knife and stick, claw and name, blood and feather. Here in the darkness, here in the darkness, we summon you together. Come! That's what she said. But she didn't say it. He said it. And who falls in this creature with a cape and some really strange looking helmet falls into this circle and just kind of lands there. And this, as we will soon learn, is the Sandman. He says, we did it. I don't believe it. Uh, and then this Burgess guy says, no, 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 we failed. This isn't death. Damn it to hell. And he grabs, you can see him grabbing a few items. He grabs this little like ruby. He grabs the helm off of off this guy, grabs this little pouch. And uh, now this creature who all we see here is this really this pale uh this pale figure who is in this circle naked now now that he's had all his stuff taken from him uh we then go back into um this this montage of some of these same characters dreaming again and uh basically we learn that uh yeah, there's basically this like sleeping sickness that is spreading here. Um, different characters are kind of getting trapped in dreams or getting trapped in some kind of uh, weird catatonic state. Uh, we do head back to uh, the this 
this house, this mansion, and we see things kind of from Sandman's perspective. And he is basically, he's trapped. Uh, he's just, he's trapped and he's observing what's going on around them. So he's, see the, sees these creepy guys coming, talking to him, and he doesn't say a word to them. We just see uh, some of his thoughts. He's saying, um, you know, this Burgess guy is saying, you won't get out unless the circle is broken and the circle will not be broken unless I order it. We will discuss the conditions of your release. And, he, and Sandman's thinking to himself, threats, patience. Uh, we then head to June 1920. Uh, I guess there is some investigation going on where they're they're looking into this guy Hathaway. Um, he's being looked at for stealing books. Of course, he he now so now we know he stole that book. I guess he works at some kind of a museum or some such thing, and he stole this book to in order to sell it to this Burgess character. Um, so he writes a suicide note where he is um, he is fingering Bur- Burgess in the note and saying, you know, "This is the guy that has the book," um, but uh, Burgess is actually watching him because he's a creepy sort of satanic dude and uh he is the 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 um what did i write here why did i write this uh burgess is known as the daemon king by the way and uh he goes free because um he basically he basically kills this guy (laughs) he kills this hathaway guy from afar with, with some kind of spell so he can never uh get turned in about the fact that he possesses this this book uh meanwhile the uh the sleepy sickness continues uh to spread and uh, yeah, basically, like people all over the globe are kind of falling into these various uh, states of sort of catatonic sleep, or some are kind, of, some are end up in like insane asylums because they're basically not functioning. Um, basically, like any character, any person that was in the midst of a dream at the time of dreams removal uh, from his own realm, it kind of gets stuck in some kind of state. I don't know if it's everybody, but it's, but it's a lot of people. Uh, we're and we're just kind of going through time here. So about ten years later, um, this kid. Alex, he figures out that it was not death. I mean, we already knew it wasn't death, but he figures out by looking through another book that it was Dream that they actually captured here, The Lord of the Dreamscape. Um, let's see. And let's see. In 1930, this, there's this guy Sykes as well. Sykes is the assistant to Burgess, and he has this mi- mistress, Ethel. She takes a bunch of, of the stuff. So a bunch of his stuff is, is missing uh, when this, this cheating and lying bitch uh, leaves him and takes all his shit. Um, after this, the order splits up and kind of scatters the order that was, uh, you know, whatever this sort of weird satanic order was. Um, let's see. We then learned that this Sykes character, uh, he was basically Burgess's assistant and he kind of like stole some of the stuff from him. Uh, he traded this mask. We learned that he traded the mask to a demon for some kind of amulet. And, um, let's see. So this guy Sykes, he had the amulet and it was keeping him safe from Burgess because he basically betrayed Burgess, had this amulet. As soon as, uh, this bitch took the amulet from him, he was no longer protected from Burgess's uh, attempts to get to him. So his head explodes (laughs) because, because, uh, because this mistress uh, stole his uh, stole the amulet. So watch out who you have an affair with. That's all I'm going to say. And don't let them steal your shit, especially if you have mystical, magical shit that might be keeping you safe from other mystical, magical shit. That'll do the trick. We also learn, because uh, we're, we're, we're seeing about a lot of these characters that are stuck in these sort of canatonic states, but the, the one we seem to get more information on is this Unity Kincaid character. And uh, we find out that when she's in, in this hospital, uh, she was actually raped and had a baby. So... That's crazy. All while in this catatonic state. Uh, We then get this is now one thing I really love about this series 
is um, it seems to really take place, at least in the beginning, um, sort of outside any kind of you know regular comic book continuity. Uh, but this is a DC book. I don't think it was even under Vertigo when it was first published. I think Vertigo came a little later. There were books being printed with the DC imprint that were not considered necessarily DC comics. And what's funny is when you look at stuff like Sandman and even uh, Constantine Hellblazer, I think Miracle Man too. They had they had acquired Miracle Man from I, I forget who the original publisher was in the seventies. Uh, they were publishing a lot of these first in Europe, and then they were publishing them in North America. So they didn't necessarily want to put the DC imprint on there, but they were DC products. So I think they were kind of sampling it overseas, and then they were bringing it back to the U.S. One thing I like about this, though, is that they actually do tie these stories into the regular DC universe, at least in the beginning here. This kind of fades away a little bit um, as the series goes on and when it actually moves to becoming a full Vertigo book. Then it kind of does seem to separate from the DC universe. But early on here, we do get a lot of uh, references and interactions with other aspects of the DC universe. And in this case, um, you know, we're kind of seeing the effects over the years of Dream being missing and, and not you know handling his duties uh, as uh, running the Dreamscape. And it says here, the universe knows someone is missing and slowly it attempts to replace him. Wesley Dodd's nightmares have stopped since he started going out at night. He puts evil people to sleep with gas, then sprinkles sand on them, leaves them for the police to find in the morning. The idea came to him in his sleep. This is the DC Universe Sandman. And I really love how they tie this other Sandman character into this character by sort of, you know, going retroactively going back into this history of, I guess, what is also the history of the DC universe. I don't know where where this lies in continuity now, if it does at all. Uh, but I really like that they, they actually tied in this original Sandman character, which Neil Gaiman was a big fan of. I think this was a Jack Kirby creation and Neil Gaiman was a big fan of this this character. Eh. And he... No, hmm? no, no. Sandman was an original member of the Justice Society. He was not. He was not created by Jack Kirby. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Remzo. We're gonna find out in one second. We're gonna do live research. The Sandman of the 1970s was created by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. Thank you very much. I do my the research. The 1970s. Yeah. Yeah. Man, I must have gotten like everything about. We're, we're talking about Sandman with the gas mask and the sleep gun. Indeed, I could have swore he was like way older than that. Wow. Although that doesn't really seem to tie in. That doesn't really add up to the tie in to what they're saying. Okay. You know what it is? There are several. Okay. Now I see. So we were both right and both wrong. Wesley Dodds is the first Sandman. Oh, well, well, really dream is the first Sandman if we're going in continuity, but in, in terms of, but in public- terms of appearance. Yeah. Okay. So that character, that Sandman actually first appeared. All right. You're right. Which makes sense with the timing of the story in adventure comics, number 40 in July, 1939. And then there's another Sandman, the Sandman of the 1970s that was created by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. So, and that is a totally different looking Sandman. Uh, who is just like wears a cape and looks like kind of like a regular superhero, but also puts people to sleep. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Neil Gaiman was a fan of that Sandman and was sort of the inspiration for what led to this book, even though they, they couldn't be any more different. So, so this Sandman is kind of like the Mark Furman of superheroes. He beats people up who have committed crimes. And then he sprinkles crack on them in the inner city. Something like that. Yeah. yeah okay. We can go with that. Let's move on. Uh, but this is, this is actually the second appearance by Wesley Dodds. On the Second Print Comics podcast, do you remember the first time we, the first story in which we discussed Wesley Dodds? <laughs> no, you're not going to. It's Kingdom Come. 
because he is actually in the beginning of Kingdom Come. Oh my gosh, he's the guy dying at the yes. beginning. Oh my, okay. So we are we are full circle with Wesley Dodds. Wow. Here we are seeing the birth of Wesley Dodds, and then in Kingdom Come, in a, a far off future, we're, we see the death of Wesley Dodds. So, oh boom. wow! See, folks, yeah. listening to every episode pays off. Exactly. Yep. Everything ties in. It all ties in eventually. Um, let's see. So yeah, we get Wesley Dodds uh, in 1947. We go and this Burgess guy, um, he basically just um, he he goes off. He goes off on Sandman. He is like so pissed off. He's he's getting old. He's upset. Um, he's he's screaming at 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 a dream now. He's yelling, "You aren't death, but you live forever. You haven't aged a day since he, we caught you. You could have given me power by my wildest dreams." And he, it's it's kind of pathetic. He's just crying now. He's like, "I didn't have to get so old. I shouldn't have had to get so old." And we just see we see these thought balloons. We really haven't seen dream yet. I'm just referring to him as, as that because I know the story now. Uh, but he's thinking, "My watch my captor grow old and die. No satisfaction. Still here." waiting and this is one patient motherfucker he has been waiting here since 1916 it is now 1955 as as we pr- proceed through the years here um and we see that alex who is the son of uh alex burgess uh, who or roger burgess I, I should say is the is his dad uh he dies in 1947 and alex is still keeping the sandman there um and who still won't say a word uh mostly because he just doesn't know what to do with him like alex doesn't seem quite as evil as as his dad uh roderick burgess but um you know he's got this creature trapped in the circle and what are you gonna do you know I, if he lets him out he's afraid that some bad shit will happen uh understandably so puts the lotion on the skin <laughs> and uh i found this pretty interesting in 1968 we we kind of find out now basically this this guy alex now he's his dad was like more of a true believer he was like an actual satanic what have you but now this this guy alex he's running his version of the order and it's really more about um, he's talking to his assistant guy here and he's saying that uh, this is now they're, they're talking about how they this is basically like to a way to meet chicks at the end of the day. <laughs> they invite in these chicks. They practice like trippy stuff like Kundalini yoga, tant- tantric sex, astral travel. Um, by the way, Remzo, I've done two out of those three things. <laughs> so I'll let I'll let the audience at home decide which two of those three things I have participated in in my life. Children, go on your parents work computer and type in <laughs> tantric sex into Google. <laughs> Uncle Remso approves. We're going to break up families one way or the other through this show. But we're also going to teach you about comics and teach you to read. So it's all going to work out. One thing interesting here, too, they they say that there's no psychedelics that are allowed, uh, even though they're having all these fun parties. And it's the 1960s. No psychedelics allowed because he's worried that waking dreams could actually empower uh, dream. So I found that pretty interesting. Um, eventually, Alex gives the keys to this, this guy, his assistant, uh, Paul McGuire, who doesn't believe in magic. So mm, that's going to be a little scary. This guy's, you know, we fi- he finally gets control to this guy who doesn't actually believe in what's going on there. Um, meanwhile, I think, is this Alex that comes to see him? Yeah, this is, yeah, this is Alex. He comes down and visits Sandman here, and he says, you don't have to be in there, you know. The deal's still the same one that my father offered you. Power, immortality, a promise that you won't seek revenge. Well, I know you can understand me. Say something. And Sandman just says, no. I th- and I think he's just saying no in his head because he's still he's still not actually speaking out here. Those were a lot like Biggie Smalls' last words. No. Well, I mean, he said, fuck the police, but it's kind of <laughs> like that. Speaking of crack, uh, in 1970, uh, Alex visits his dad's grave. I don't really know the significance of that, but yeah, he is still looking in this book and uh, he is, he say he, he will no longer even read books on magic except for one, the Liber Fulvarum Pejanarum, and he only reads one page of that book. 
over and over and over and it is just the page that shows you see the picture of sandman uh we keep kind of going through a montage of the years and he keeps he, he we see him getting older and older 1972 1978 1982 and he keeps going down to visit sam and he's saying why won't you talk to me you could tell us so many things you haven't had a decent night's sleep for 60 years is that your fault is it he's like i could torture you you know i could but but don't think I couldn't. I've killed people before, you know. And 1988, he's still going down there, still having talks to him. Uh, I, I find does he feed this too. fucker, or does he just no. leave him there? Doesn't feed anything. And we see another thought balloon from Sandman. He just says, soon. Um, and uh, basically, the guard now. Now he has guards down there that are that are always uh, watching watching him. This and um, at one point, this one guard uh, kind of falls asleep and he starts dreaming. He uh, he tur- he's dreaming of being on this Spanish beach, in this tropical paradise. There's all these hot chicks there, and then we see a, a you know a caption from Dream. He says it begins. And essentially, what's happening is because the same reason that he was worried about using psychedelics because they'd have sort of waking dreams. Um, Basically, this dream is so close to him is it seems to, I guess, is supposed to be empowering him uh, in some way. Uh, we then see Dream just fall over. He just falls over in his little bubble here that he's in. He's kind of in this like glass case. And they, the guards say, like, oh, you don't look at him. You don't think he's dead? Uh, I don't know. What what a thing. What the hell do we know? What, what do we do now? Well, they won't think it's our fault, will they? We didn't do nothing. And he says, wait here. I'll go get McGuire, who is uh, you know the assistant. And he comes down and says, how long has he been like this? And he says, well, I, I don't know. I suppose we ought to take a look at him. He's never done anything like this before. So now this motherfucker who doesn't believe in magic, so he's probably not really even that worried takes the key unlocks this little glass bubble thing moves it and then we see dream he wakes up opens his hand he's got a little sand in there he blows the sand out and these motherfuckers all pass out and then boom dream just emerges from this thing and we basically see this wisp of sand and wind and he's he's basically just has he's broken out of this thing altogether everybody wakes up and they say what happened where did he go and uh, Dream has has basically finally, after what was it, like seventy two years, finally escapes from this prison. Seventy two years, didn't get a night of sleep, didn't have a bite to eat, didn't say a freaking word. That is some patience. He just waited for his moment and just bided his time. Someone get that man a Snickers. Yeah, um, we we then he he basically goes and through some other dreams to sort of like repower himself. And I, I found this pretty funny. At one point he goes into someone's dream and eats some, some dream Kentucky fried chicken <laughs> to, to get some, to get some, uh, some, some nutrition, some sustenance. I feel like if I had a 72 year prison break, I would want KFC. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like you earned it at that point. I think KFC didn't exist before. So this is probably his first time having it. Cause it didn't even exist in dreams or reality. I don't think before, uh, before he was captured in 1916, wow. if I'm correct there. Uh, so he gets some food, gets some clothes. He gets himself a, a leather jacket, uh, some leather boots. He's looking pretty spiffy. And he says, well, something else I crave, revenge. Uh, but he's also missing, by the way. He's missing uh, some of his items, of course, as we saw in the beginning. He's missing his, pou- his pouch, his helm, and his ruby. And uh, that guy, Sykes, uh, the, the old assistant, uh, is the one that has them, or at least he believes is the one that has him. Uh, meanwhile, we see that this Alex character, um, he is finally sleeping. He is, uh, he, he says, they say he's having a nap and we see that he is just basically in this, um, in this catatonic sleep state dream shows up in this chair and he says like, hello. And he says, you aren't talking. What's the matter? Cat got your tongue. 
no oh my god it's you and dream says it's that's right it's me and he says oh my god i'm sorry it wasn't me my father he did it yeah so it was him okay but that that's just weird because the the drawing and the the pages earlier don't don't look like him at all so I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say this as a criticism now i get that the art is good that doesn't mean I like it. Interesting. Because the transitions are, are, are like, you have to like read between the lines of the transitions. Yeah. So, and, and this, I feel like he should look, oh, he suddenly looks younger here. And that, that's what's really, oh, I know why. Okay. I, I understand now. I remember now. It's all coming back to me. He's in a dream now. So he's, he's so yeah. older. Alex Burgess is sleeping, has been put into this sleep state and dream is visiting him here. And this is where he looks younger in his actual dream state. Okay. That makes sense to me. At the end of the day, he's like asking where all his stuff is. He's like, I'm missing my pouch, my helm, my ruby. Your people stole it from me. Where are they? And he just says, look, that's all the stuff that that Sykes guy pinched 50 years ago. We never saw any of that again. And he says, all right, I see. Well, your punishment, I will grant you a gift to reward you for your years of hospitality. I give you this eternal waking. And then he kind of wakes up from his sleep. This is back in reality, the old Alex uh, Burgess. And uh, he says, uh, this uh, McGuire is there. And he says, are you all right? He says, sorry, I must have had a nightmare. I dreamed that our prisoner had escaped in this tower. He was, uh, he said, uh, and then Paul McGuire says, he has, he did. He's out, Alex. He checked out this morning and McGuire's face starts turning into this nightmarish face. And then Alex wakes up. And he's basically what happens here. He wakes up again. He's like, oh, I was dreaming. And this nurse is there. She's talking. She And he's like, hey, what's going on? Uh, I was dreaming. I have this terrible nightmare. And then her head falls off. And she and so basically he's in this eternal waking nightmare where he continues to wake up and think he's awake now. And then some crazy, creepy shit happens because he's having a nightmare. And then it happens again and again and again. And this is Alex's punishment for keeping Dream in there for all these years. I got to be honest. I feel a little bad for this guy because he's he was just a kid when this happened his dad was really the real satanist one that, that was into all this stuff alex kind of just grew up and didn't even care too much about the magic stuff he pretty much gave it up altogether. he just really didn't know what to do with this with this creepy pale motherfucker uh so he started throwing you know parties inviting chicks over having orgies that sort of thing and now now he's got got to deal with this i mean i don't know it'll be a tough situation i feel like that's the price for a for a life well lived yeah, I mean, I mean, he definitely had a good time with the whole thing. No it's definitely it. a trade-off, better than most people. Yeah, so that does it for the first issue of a Sandman. Uh, before we go further, Remzo, what are your initial thoughts just about the introduction of this character? Uh, definitely different. I like how they 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 introduce him not directly, but they kind of open up to who he is throughout the first issue. So it's more revealing. It feels more cinematic. I think most comic books, even in that era in the late eighties really did. I will say, you know, once again, the artwork here, much like what we discussed with the max, it's very much an acquired taste. And I don't deny that it's very good. It's very well done. But like in some of the transitions, when I looked at a trade back of it recently at Barnes and Noble, as we, as I was prepping for the episode, like it's it's one of those things where it's like you can't skip a panel. You can't really even skip the dialogue because you really have to read between the panels, so to speak, to really have a full understanding of it. So this isn't like a, you know, like if I if I grab like an issue of Superman or something right now where everything is very direct and in order, you're not going to get it here. Yeah, there are certain books where you can kind of flip through and yes, read it. But, you know, you can kind of go through quickly and, and not have missed anything. This is not one of those books. I mean, I just read this in the last two days and I was still a little lost 
even having notes and all that because it, it can be hard to follow. Do you find that enjoyable? Like, do you like that? Because some people really like that. And I've never been one of those people. It's like, I want to read this and I don't want to, I don't want the artwork to confuse the flow or ha- force me to have to infer anything else. I didn't find it as confusing when I was reading it in real time. I think just trying to go through it in recap form. Like I, I, it, I forgot like, oh yeah, that's why this Alex looks younger. Suddenly stuff like that. Um, I, I don't, I didn't have that same trouble going through it, but you do have to pay attention. I, I would say that's the yeah. thing. You can't, you can't be like daydreaming and reading this book. Like you could with say like maybe a superman book or an x-men book if there's more some straightforward just here's a battle for th- for 22 pages whereas this is a story like i said neil gaiman is a writer and he is writing uh and yeah I-, I don't know if i really blame the art per se um but I- yeah i wouldn't say it's confusing i would just say you really got to pay attention yeah which can be hard and i, I am I am a, a self-diagnosed uh, with uh, some level of ADD. It's really hard for me to focus on things. I'm always bouncing around. I'm always reading a chapter of one book, then going and listening to something, then going and watching a movie. Like I need to sort of like my brain needs to bounce around for things. And that's why, you know, books like this can be a little more challenging for the the adult brain of, of Mark Clare. Moving on to issue number two. This is where we meet some characters that will become reoccurring in this book. We meet Good old Cain and Abel. Ramzo, what can you tell me about Cain and Abel? Cain and Abel foreseen in the book of Exodus, in the uh, in the Jewish Torah, first, in the Christian Bible. The Old Testament. Yeah, and, and I even I even think in some parts of the Quran, Cain and Abel were the male sons of Adam and Eve. And one were day, they, in there too? I didn't they, know they were in there too. Cain and Abel, Cain and Abel are, well, if you read anything that goes back to that Judeo-Christian uh, creation story, you know, Adam and Eve are cast out of the Garden of Eden, and they have several children, two of which are Cain and Abel, who are the eldest, who are the brothers. And Cain is uh, is kind of a dick, and Abel goes out and he collects his crops and he sacrifices his favorite animals to God. And he's like, "Look, my look at my offering, O Lord." And the Lord says, "Good job, Abel. Like that's that that's a good one. I appreciate you going out of your way, Cain. What about you?" And Cain is like barely doing any work. He's stealing other people's stuff and roadkill. And God is like, "Cain, you got." to up your game. So one day, uh, Cain is just kind of fed up with it. So he murders Abel, like murders him like Quentin Tarantino style. He just straight up murders him and he hides his body somewhere. And then he takes his, uh, his, his sacrifice and takes it to the Lord. And he's like, here, God, here, here, here's your sacrifice. And God is like, uh, and then Adam is out <laughs> looking for Abel and he's like, Cain, have you seen your brother? He hasn't been around for a while. And Cain replies, am I my brother's keeper? And then when they find his body, Adam's like, what the hell? So he goes ahead and he strikes Cain across the face, you know, giving him a disfigured look. And he casts him out into the world and says, go, go away because you you killed your brother. You've ruined the family. Like I was already on the outs of God. You've made things even harder now. So that that also uh, is is where the term the mark of Cain came from. Ah, well, we got it. That's a that's a real origin story we got right there. See, going Liberty University paid off for like some stuff. <laughs> it definitely has. It has paid off a couple times in this show. I will say that for sure. Yeah. So we meet 
Cain and Abel. And yeah, basically Cain and they are the same characters. I mean, they're supposed to be the same characters as you just described from the Bible. Um, and Cain is just basically always abusing Abel. Now, of course, they are living in sort of the nether realm here. Um, so in, in this story, in this reoccurring situation that we'll see throughout this book, uh, I think we only see it like one time in this particular story, but this is reoccurring throughout the Sandman series. Um, Abel is basically just always scared of Cain, um, but he's always kind of like warming up to him anyway. Uh, you know, Cain will give him a present or something and he, he thinks it's going to be, you know, maybe this time it, w- it won't be, it won't end like last time, but it always ends like last time and Cain ends up murdering Abel um, and then Abel always comes back from death and then gets murdered again. Abel's like Kenny from South Park. Yes, Abel, exactly. I believe Abel was actually the inspiration for Kenny from what I understand about the history of South Park. You can fact check that if you want. I'll take it. And then uh, Gregory the Gargoyle appears uh, at the door. He's this big, goofy-looking gargoyle, and he is carrying Dream, the Prince of Stories. Uh, Sandman has arrived, and we learn that he has used up his little, the little power that he had on, uh, that he had left after being uh, stranded in this freaking glass bubble for 72 years. He used that barely power he had left on that revenge, on putting uh, Alex Burgess into this never-ending nightmare state. So he's pretty weak, and um, so basically he um he needs something of his uh to sort of restore some of his power so they go and fetch the these letters of commission i don't know exactly what those are but that's what they fetch and he sort of is now uh just sort of healing himself uh slowly um in this um i guess this is the dreamscape that that he's returned to here and uh we then take a little break and we head to arkham asylum where we see this old lady She's uh, paying a visit to Dr. Destiny, who uh, is her son, uh, who is an old... Let's see. Let's see how we do, Remzo. Remzo, what can you tell me about Dr. Destiny? Nothing. Oh, we stumped him. We stumped him. You got one. Dr. Destiny has appeared is a very, very, I wouldn't even call him B. He's probably like a D-list villain, I would say. He's he's only made a few appearances uh, throughout the years in DC Comics, but he has been a foe of the Justice League several times. And basically what he does, and again, this is another thing that oh, I think I is ha- so cool. I have a question. Is yeah. he a pre or post-crisis Justice League villain? Oh, he's very pre. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I have no clue who the fuck he is then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, he, he he's yeah. I think he started. He came out in like the '60s in some Justice uh, Justice League book or something. That's some when sort. they would take Doctor and they just add any word to the end of it, and yeah. they're like, "Here's a villain." Everyone's a Doctor. Doctor Evil, Doctor Destiny, Doctor Friendly, Doctor Fate. Put Doctor in front of everything, and you got a hero. Doctor Psycho. The whole crew, the whole Doctor crew. We should have Doctor Squad. That should be a team. The doctors. Who are these universities giving these genocidal maniacs so many doctorates? <laughs> I have an MD in strangeness. Totally Rutgers. Yeah, but she's uh, visiting Dr. Destiny, uh, who is just losing his freaking shit in Arkham Asylum. And this guy, he he is looking he is looking rough. He is looking really rough. He, he basically looks like almost like the Crypt Keeper. He, his face is just like is gross and melting and he is screaming, mother, they took my dreams away from me. Now, basically, basically what this guy did is he had this power, which uh, we will learn uh, why he had this power, because he had an item of the Sandman's where he would uh, he would basically put people to sleep and give them these these nightmares, kind of like what happened to Alex Burgess. And that was that was his villainous act. Um, I don't know why he did that or what his motivation was, but that's what he did. And he's just screaming. Uh, they took my dreams away from me. Uh, so that's that's just a little hint of Dr. Death. And we'll hear back from him later. Um, but we go back to the dreamscape and 
Dream basically is just, you know, he's just describing his whole journey and everything that he had to go through to uh, get back to the dreamscape. We then meet Lucian, who is, uh, he's kind of like his butler or assistant, I guess you might say. say. And uh, he find he finds out that the dreamscape has been decaying while he was gone because, um, you know, all of the power of Dream has, was, you know, taken away from that realm and that made things sort of decay. And uh, I should point out the dreamscape is a, a pretty wild looking place you know you got Cain and Abel you got this flying dragon you got this huge crazy looking castle uh you got this creepy pale guy running over the whole thing it's just it's just a wild wild situation here and uh but I really do love like the imagination and the mythology I mean that that's really the big thing of Neil Gaiman he is so steeped in knowledge about uh various mythologies and he really interweaves them through through all of his works I don't know if you've ever read or, or seen I haven't seen the show yet I'm actually I have a star's uh, trial right now so I'm gonna to try to try check it out. But have you seen or ever read American Gods? I, I knew about it. It's one of those books where it's like you know, even some stuff is a bit too edgy for me. I enjoyed the book greatly, but I just I didn't. Not I didn't like Preacher either. If that gives you a, an insight, okay. Some just stuff a little some, too uh, some stu- little too intense. Some stuff is just like you know, I'm gonna pass on this. All right, fair enough. To each his own. Now you're going to make me want to do a preacher story one of these days. So I'm going to, I'm going to force you to revisit your trauma. <laughs> I, I, I like that type of stuff sometimes, but like I, how do I put it? A lot of, a lot of just really hardcore, grotesque, offensive stuff happens on the boys. And I see it as comedy, but with preacher, it's one of those things where it's like, you're, you're, you're taking a lot of, uh, a lot of things that me and many people see as like core beliefs. And when you make fun of it in a way, which is really meant to be derogatory, it's like, you know, I respect your art. I respect uh, your, your ability to do that. And, you know, maybe it's for some people, but it's just not for me. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Art, art, art is art. I'm never going to say I hate it. Don't read it. Like art is art. Like, you know, like there are some songs that, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, I wish you could take the curse words out or something. It's like, don't censor someone's art, whether you like it or not. You don't have the right to do that. So, you know, what's, what's good for some people is not good for me and vice versa. But that's the beautiful thing about comics. They're comics for everybody. That's exactly the the beautiful thing about comics is that it is simply a medium and so many different things can have and are done with that medium that this is why I try to really push this so much, especially sometimes I do appearances on on really non-comic book related podcasts where people ask me about the show and I, I try to explain like, you know, people have this idea of what comics are, that it's all, uh, you know, cheesy men in tights doing cheesy things. And that is a, a decent portion of comics, surely, uh, but there is so much more to comics and Sam and this particular story is, is a great example of that, even though it does have some tie-ins to the superhero world uh, it is very much uh, very far away from a standard uh, superhero story yeah uh, but yeah, basically, Dream is just getting the recap of some things that have gone on while he's been gone. Uh, I'm not going to go through it all. It's not all that important. Uh, but we got a little segue where we see Abel getting a gift from his big brother, Kane, And uh, it's a bird that bursts out of this egg. And Abel names the bird Irving. And <laughs> Kane is like, Irving? You're naming him Irving. You can't name it Irving. So it's actually, it looks like a bird, but it's like a baby gargoyle, gargoyle like Gregory. And he says, no names for gargoyles always begin with a G. And he is so infuriated by the fact that Abel named him Irving and not something with a G name that Kane goes ahead and murders his brother as he does. 
So this will not be the first time or the last time that that we see uh, Abel get murdered if uh, if anyone continues with the story. Uh, we then see that Lucian is still talking to Dream, and he's saying, you know, Dream's telling him about all this stuff that was stolen from him. And Lucian's saying, well, you got to call the three-in-one. And these three-in-one, they have all these different names. Like, Lucian calls them Earth, Vertandi, and Scald, but we hear a ton of different names for them uh, after they get summoned here. Uh, but to summon them, Dream has to first collect uh, a bunch of items. So uh, one thing that I really like, like about this character is that basically he collects things. Like, all throughout the series, he collects different items that he needs from dreams so he goes to this one guy's dream in india and like collects this like cobra he goes and collects this this uh black she lamb from another dream so basically anything that someone is dreaming he can basically go in and and take that item and use it for something for himself so he takes all these random items and he summons the three in one also known as the hecate and these bitches are freaking crazy uh they're basically three witches or like a three-headed witch um one of which I think is kind of hot, actually, <laughs> the, the blonde. Uh, but um, yeah, and uh, basically, Dream needs three answers, and they are bound to give them to to him for being because he summoned them with these items. So uh, at the end of the day, he gets to ask each of them one question, and he, he asks each of them about one of the items, and he learns what the fate of these items are. So we first ask about the, the pouch of sand, and he learns that this guy named John Constantine was the last one to purchase it. All right. He asks what happened to his helm and he hears that it was traded with a demon years ago. Now, one thing Dream does here, he, he asks follow-up questions. He's like, they say John Constantine was the last one to purchase it. Then he's like, well, does he have it now? He's like, nope, you only get one question each. Sorry. And then he's like, oh, he tra- it was traded with the helm, was traded with a demon. He's like, cool, which demon? He's like, nope, only one question. Sorry. Um, and then he learns that the Ruby Moonstone was passed from a mother to a son who, tra- who tapped into dream magic for his own ends until the superhumans took it away and took his dreams away and she says she actually gives him a little more information here she says ask the league of justice and dream thanks them for our, our help their uh, their help and they say we haven't helped you your troubles are just beginning uh we then see poor abel waking up from death and it's really just nasty it's you know he says he feels splintered vertebrae grind as he climbs even the pain feels better than the cold of death it's a long way back up and he is just slowly climbing himself uh back to this castle where eventually he'll probably be killed by his big brother again so very very sad life that that abel leads here um, after some contemplation, Dreams decides that Con- that John Constantine will be the easiest to go after. He has no idea who this guy is, but he figures, all right, this one guy, There's she said something about these superhumans. I don't know what a superhuman is, so maybe I should wait on those. I don't have the power to tangle with a demon just yet. So I'll start with this human, this John Constantine character, and we'll see what he's all about. Uh, meanwhile, uh, this is really like the saddest ending here. Uh, it is so sad. Uh, Abel, we see Abel, and he is so sad, and he's talking to um, Goldie now. It's not Irving anymore. He's calling him Goldie because he has to follow the rules and he doesn't want to be killed again. And he's like, hey, I'm going to tell you a story, Goldie. This is the freaking saddest thing. It's a secret story. It's a story of two brothers. And they uh, they loved each other very much. And they were always nice to each other, nice and kind and b- b- brotherly. And the elder brother would never hurt the younger brother, never. And they lived together in the same house. And they were they were v- 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 very happy. And I'm, I'm sorry I wasn't. I'm not crying. I'm not really. I'm not crying. It's only blood, little brother. You see blood dripping on his face. Only blood. And that is the end of issue two. My God. I I, I swear, my, my heart, I was literally, a, I wasn't literally in tears, but I was, I, I felt something there for Abel. It sucks to be Abel. 
It sucks to be able. Poor, pathetic sap. That is just that is just so sad. His entire life is just waiting for his brother to kill him again while holding out hope that he will actually have this loving relationship with his brother. It's just it's it's awful. Uh, moving on to issue three. Dream a little dream of me. Um, and we see. Let's see. We kind of see. We don't really see what's going on here, but we see this is this old hand of this gross old lady. Uh, and then that hand is reaching for something, uh, reaching for this pouch. So it's implied, of course, this is the, the, the pouch of sand. Uh, we then transition to John Constantine's hand that is turning off his alarm clock, grabbing the cigarettes. Good old John Constantine. Remzo, what can you tell me about John Constantine, AKA Hellblazer? John Constantine, demonologist, exorcist. He was part of a punk rock band in England, but in order to get even better, he made a deal with a demon who ended up stealing one of his friend's daughters as tribute. After that moment, John Constantine felt like he had to go ahead and atone and in the process also earn his soul back because as he tried to get the girl after learning some hexes and spells himself, he still lost her and lost his soul in the process to a demon so then he traveled the days hoping to atone as the demonologist of the dc universe uh you may know him from the keanu reeves film from 2003 constantine but i can certainly tell you it's actually good but it's not constantine constantine is older constantine is british constantine is uh you know he's he's just he's just different but if you love uh if you love horror if you love uh anything related to you know like ghosts demons stuff like i love um you know constantine the hellblazer is is probably i think uh, a really underrated character a lot of people who have gotten the comic books recently may know him from the justice league dark animated films which are fantastic or from uh constantine on on the cw or uh legends of tomorrow which is a okay show but you know Matt Ryan, Matt Ryan does a great Constantine. He's he's the best actor to to be the character. Does John Constantine have actual powers, or he just does he just kind of like learn some magic stuff? He's a he's a sorcerer warlock type of dude. But it's all from studying. He's not. Yeah. You know, he's not like a. He never got acquired special powers of any sort. No, necessarily. Okay. No, mad magic works in conjunction with the DC universe. So in Marvel's world like some people are more attuned to that stuff like they've retconned it a couple times so like dr strange uh is not like a superhuman but he, he was like he had like a special gift to be more naturally inclined to magic than most people whereas in the, the dc universe anyone could pick up some spells as long as they could figure it out they could pretty much do it gotcha so he basically just studied really hard yeah all right fair enough that means there's hope for everybody anybody can learn magic if they just hit the books um so john constantine goes out Goes out in the town and he meets this lady, Mad Hetty, who I, I, I think is a regular character in the Constantine book. And uh, she's banging on the door of this diner, screaming at him. And she's yelling at him, telling him, uh, Morpheus, the Sandman is back. He's like, uh, OK, OK, cool. And he's like, you know, he's t- talking about Mad Hetty. And he's like, yeah, she's 247 years old. And he's like, well, she is 247 years old, so she might actually know some stuff here. Um, meanwhile, we kind of cut away. To this we see this guy uh breaking into this house and uh he's um he's a thief of some kind and he's, he breaks into this house and suddenly he's caught in this crazy dream first he's having sex in the middle of this dream and this is like while he's 
waking, we, we presume. So uh, he, he's in this house and then tur- kind of his life is turning into this dream. He's racing in this Porsche. Then he's he becomes Jesus. Then he becomes Superman. And he's basically just like trapped into this dream state saying he's the strongest man in the world. He can do anything, anything, absolutely anything. Um, we'll, we'll see more about this guy in a little bit. Uh, Sandman then appears. Uh, basically, Constantine is doing all this research of like who the Sandman is, and he, I don't know where he is. I guess he's in a library or something. And then Sandman, or no, I think he's just at his house. And then uh, Sandman just appears. He appears at his, at his doorway and says, "John Constantine, I presume." And uh, basically, Constantine, uh, Sandman just explains the situation to him. He's like, "Hey, I'm missing this pouch. I heard you have it. What's the deal?" Uh, so Constantine, without batting an eye, just takes him to. Uh, this he's like oh I think that stuff is all in my storage unit so they take off go to the storage unit and um, while he's rifling through all this stuff Dream is like it's not here I would I would feel this magic if it was here like I'm so connected to it he's like look it's here somewhere I'll find it uh, but he's flipping through and finds a picture of him with this chick and he's like oh shit we've all been there Remzo oh shit when you realize that an ex this ex the crazy ex girlfriend has some item and you're like oh, fuck, I, I still okay, I gotta- never got my favorite hoodie back from one of them <laughs> See, so you know, Bitch. you know, and you're like, well, I want this thing, I want it, but I have to talk, I have to go there. Like, and you know what? Forget it, forget it. So now Constantine is in that situation, only he has this mystical dream character here who's kind of expecting to get his pet couch back and kind of probably isn't going to take, uh, I don't want to go talk to my ex girlfriend as an answer here. Uh, but yeah, basically, Rachel is is this bitch that, uh, that, oh, cheated you, on know the, you know, and, the best way to describe John Constantine, he's the Rick Sanchez of the DC universe. Okay, not bad. A little younger and more British and smoking more cigarettes. Yeah. And with magic instead of science. If you like Rick and Morty and are willing to change a few variants, John Constantine is Rick Sanchez from Rick and Morty. Yeah, this inner monologue uh, from Constantine is pretty hilarious. He says, everyone shuts up and Chaz, who's the driver, jolts up the motorway. Our visitor melts into the backseat shadows. And I remember Rachel. Amazing Rachel. Junkie Rachel. Crackhead. See the references. Everything ties together. together. We were living in a high-rise flat in East Croydon. I went to Alaska for six months over the lupus affair. When I got back, she was gone, along with Mysterio. I, lo- I love the, the British talk. Mysterio, the telly, me silver surfers. Are those, he's referring to comic books there? My, my silver surfers? Or is there something else that is an item? That I, don't I don't Let's know. Let's assume he also likes comics. I'm going to assume he does. Any old junk she can convert to money, and she'd long since converted the money into junk. Stupid bitch. Sometimes I still miss her. <laughs> I just laughed so hard at it. It's just what he's thinking to himself as they're as they're driving to to find this uh, to find this old ex girlfriend. So uh, they basically they go up to uh, they go to Rachel's dad's house and immediately when they walk to the door, Dream knows that the pouch is there and he warns Constantine. He's like, "Look, there is some bad shit in here." Uh, but Constantine's like, "Whatever, man. I'm here. I'm here for the party. I've, I'm into magic stuff. Like, I'm not gonna leave here. I gotta see what's going on." So they walk in and they see this guy, that same guy that broke into the house earlier and found himself into this uh crazy dream dream world and uh yeah he's dead that guy's dead and um constantine as they walk in constantine gets ripped into this uh crazy dream world of his own here and he's moving through this like this grossness and sandman says that this is actually rachel's dad's body that is somehow spread throughout the whole house and they're like walking through it um and as they're walking through like sandman is kind of in this he's falling like he's in this weird dream realm but he's also in reality so they're they're physically walking through this house but constantine is kind of like being overtaken by this gross nastiness and then there's these creepy green 
creatures that start coming out of the wall and they're they're saying leave here do not disturb leave the woman she is ours but then as they as dream continues to walk in um they realize that they they realize who it is and they say master and dream is basically he's like i got this stuff like i'm their master they're gonna listen to me we're all good here um so they walk into the room and they see rachel who is indeed that nasty gross looking lady that we just saw her arm of at the beginning and she is looking absolutely absolutely vile and disgusting and she says john john is is that you i've had such a wonderful dream 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 whenever i want to all i have to do is dream and constantine's just like jesus christ rachel don't do crack kids don't do crack or don't do definitely don't do dream uh dream pouch crack for sure uh, Dream says, I have the pouch. The dreams will return to their proper location in time. We can go now. And Constantine's like, go. We're not going to go. We can't just leave her like this. And she's saying, don't don't take my bag. It's it, it's not my bag. It, it hurts. It hurts. And he's like, and Dream's like, why can't we leave her like this? Like, what's the problem? He's like, look, she's my he's, he's my ex-girlfriend. I, I still have feelings for her. You can't, you can't bloody leave her like this. And he's like, all right, Constantine, go outside. So Constantine leaves. And basically, Sandman pour some of this um this sand on her face and she goes into this dream where she now sees constantine and she's on a beach or and i guess she's like in a mountain way and basically just walking off into the sunset with john constantine and she basically he basically just covers her up puts her to sleep and tells and he walks out tells constantine that she's dead and he basically tells her that she died peacefully she died happily he's like okay great great news then awesome and he's like, all right, where are you going now? And Sandman says, to hell. And he says, aren't we all, mate? Aren't we all? I'll go wake Chaz up and take off back to the smoke then. Got work to do, eh? I'll see ya. And Dream just disappears and says, goodbye, Constantine. And um, yeah, basically, he just disappears. And Constantine just kind of whistles and sings the the song that I started the show with. Mr. Sandman, bring me a dream. Bum, 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 bum. As we end this issue. What are you thinking here of uh, Sandman's journey so far? What do you think of his interaction with a character who had been around for several years prior to this with John Constantine? I like John Constantine, but I mean, my, my big criticism of Sandman, maybe this is because I read ahead on some stuff, is like, how often does this stuff really matter? And, uh, you know, this, this tries to be like a very like concise, like single story type of event book in a way, but it also doesn't. So I, I like it. I'll say, I'll say that. And I liked this issue more than the last one. Yeah. I like that they tie into like characters we know in the DC universe. I think they were definitely making a concerted effort for you to know that this took place in the DC universe in the beginning. Like I said, that kind of changes going on, but at the same time, I can see how it could be a little forced in some ways too, because this didn't need to be John Constantine. You know, this could have been kind of anybody that had somehow gotten this pouch and, you know, an ex-girlfriend ended up getting it. Uh, It wasn't really necessary that it had to be John Constantine, but it was John Constantine. I think mostly just so people that follow comics say, Hey, John Constantine's in this book and and check out the book or what have you. So, um, but I did enjoy the interaction. Nonetheless, I always enjoy seeing John Constantine. Yeah. Just as I enjoyed his appearance, he appeared in the very early issues of Sam of uh, Swamp Thing, Swamp Thing as well. Yeah. That's where he first appeared. Oh, was that his first appearance? Yeah. Oh, so he had only been around for maybe three or four years at this point. Cause I think that was 85. Yeah. There's this wild, there's, there's this wild issue where Alec, uh, as Swamp Thing wants to have a, have a child with his wife, uh, that, that crazy chick who's constantly cheating on her boyfriend, Gabe or whatever his name was. Yeah, yeah. So what he does Matt is he, Gable. yeah, Matt Gable. So what he does is he takes over Constantine's body and his wife is like totally cool with it. And Constantine is like, I get to bang your wife. Okay. So Alec takes over Constantine's body. Uh, he bangs his wife and then they have a kid. All right. 
Well, that's a little tale from the, the Swamp Thing past. Um, that's a real fuck it pile right there. <laughs> fuck it pile of knowledge. That's some fucking Alan Moore shit right there. That is that that's that's right up there with um when when they're eating the, the eating the little like uh fruits that come off of him and it's like his his organs, his plant organs. Alan Moore and Frank Miller have problems with consensual sex. <laughs> I think that's fair to say. Not in real life, not applying anything. No, of course not. Just in their writing, yeah. everybody. Moving on to issue four, hope. A hope in hell. Sandman walks right up. We are continuing right where we picked off. He's got his pouched sand. Uh, he's getting some of his power back. He's feeling confident enough to go where to the gates of hell. And who greets him there? New Jersey. Remzo, we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna, he, he winds up in New Jersey where he's uh, greeted by uh, what's his name? Chris Christie. Chris Christie is it's my bridge. This <laughs> is my bridge, bitch. Um, but no, he is greeted by the demon Etrigan. Remzo, we're gonna do it again. What can you tell us about the demon Etrigan? Gone, gone, the form of man, rise the demon, Etrican. Etrican, as we met in the Swamp Thing episode way on her back, is a former knight named Jason Blood, who was a member of Ar- of King Arthur's Knights of the Round Table. He was uh, corrupted and betrayed by Morgan Le Fay, and as penance, he was cast upon uh, by the wizard Merlin to merge with a demon, so that way he would walk eternally until he could atone for his sins for his dying day. So he's like the Hulk, but he rhymes. Yes, and actually, Sandman here, he he see he knows Etrigan, knows the demon, but he also notes he's like, oh, you rhyme now. So like, clearly there's been like different versions of this demon, and I forget, I what, what is the reason he rhymes? I remember you you mentioned this once. The the reason he rhymes is because in Europe, and I'll even include a lot of the the Scandinavian, more Norse countries. Um, Ghosts and demons rhyme. That's how you know if somebody's dead or not. So if somebody speaks entirely in rhymes, they uh, they they're they're usually dead. I don't know when that started, but if you go back to like you know old like you know British history and stuff like that and other things, they typically do. So because Etrican was a demon who was bonded to Jason Blood during the medieval times, it would make more sense that because of the culture, he would be a rhymer. This guy brings the facts, ladies and gentlemen, brings the facts. Be careful of rhymers. Do you want to see me get locked in haunted places with crackheads and ghosts? Go ahead and check out my television series, The Witching Hour. Season three is out now. Now, that's a natural segue. Where can they find it? Uh, you can go ahead and check out Argos, A-R-G-O-S, paranormal.com. We're on about a, uh, 17 public access stations throughout the United States. So you can find our YouTube channel, Argos Paranormal. All right. Check it out. Creepy, creepy stuff. Um, Dream is brought to the gates of hell, and he meets Lucifer, who Lucifer takes sort of different forms. Uh, but this version of Lucifer seems to be some some sort of hot look it looks like a chick here doesn't it look like a chick? it is a chick in this version but i think lucifer is actually a male it's later. not it's not the same it's not the same lucifer it's it's not the same lucifer i think i'm 99 sure it's not the same lucifer all right well anyway this lucifer is in a white jumpsuit and has wings and crazy like 70s hair oh yeah di- different different lucifer because that would be a retcon later because in the lucifer series which which is by dc comics same as the tv show which for years i guess i didn't realize Lucifer Morningstar is a guy. I think this is, I don't know. I think it's the same Lucifer that changes later or something like that, but who knows? Either way, it's, it's it, Lucifer. Yeah, it's like Lady Loki. Like it just depends when you when you jump into the books, I guess. Yeah. 
and um, Dream is talking to, to Lady Lucifer, and you know she's talking about how some things have changed here. Like I don't just rule hell by myself. This is actually he's she's actually a co-monarch um, with Beelzebub and Azazel, and um, so they he has to talk to these other other creepers, and Beelzebub is just like super creepy, gross uh, bug creature. And Azazel, they both are. Azazel is, is also like this gross, creepy looking bug creature. So they're really gross. Lucifer, see now Lucifer looks like a dude. So I think it actually is a dude. I think it's, I might have to criticize the art of Sam Keith a little bit here because honestly, in some panels, this looks clearly like a woman. And then in other panels, it's, oh no, it's actually a, a dude. I think they intentionally did that because of Neil Gaiman and some of his work. Like he he really, he, he the really, androgyny. yeah, the androgyny of it. He really kind of, you know, uses that in a way where it's like, I get what you're trying to do, but at the same time, it's like, just, just stick to something. If it's intentional, then it's amazing art. And if it's not intentional, <laughs> it's not a criticism of like androgynous people. It's just that, you know, maybe I just can't, maybe I just, maybe I'm just missing something here specifically with Sam Keith's art. So dream explains the situation. He's like, look, I lost my helm. I heard some demon has it. I'm here to get it. They're like, yeah, no, cool. Just tell us which demon. And he's like, I, I don't know the demon's name. And Lucifer says, well, I guess we'll have to summon all the demons. <laughs> so then on the next uh, page, we see this, uh, they're, they're kind of standing on top of this ledge. Um, and with and we just see all these freaking demons, all these various different, and I do like the art of Sam Keith here, how he just displays all these various different kinds of creatures. Um, yeah, I mean, it, you, you got to see it to, to believe it. I don't think I could even begin to describe all these various looking demonic creatures, but it's a pretty cool panel. Basically, all the demons that exist in all of the universe are gathered here, at, uh, as they have been called, by the triumvirate of hell and they basically say like all right who's got the helm someone tell me and no one speaks up so dream takes a little of his sand flushes it out in the crowd and it points exactly to who it was and he says that one everyone else moves aside and it's this pink looking dude in like leather and sunglasses with two two mouths and this demon's name is choron zone and he says yep that's right i've got the helm but you know i i made a deal for it i got it fair and square so i'm not giving it back and so dream makes a challenge and apparently in hell you you have to accept this challenge so challenge it's a accepted. weird hellish and, honor system yeah and he and he says i get to choose as the challenge i get to choose the battlefield i assert reality and then they go to this weird club this weird club scene with all these various demons and stuff around and um he's kind of like the mc it's like this weird kind of weird hellish dream situation um he says reality but this doesn't seem like reality but maybe to them it's reality and basically they play this this game um, where they're each incarnating these new dream creatures at this place. They're calling it the Hellfire Club, not the same one as the X-Men. And they go through this whole thing where they, they're conjuring different creatures. Like, like he conjures a wolf. Dream conjures this hunter to kill the wolf. It just goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, uh, until finally uh, Toran's own, he... Let's see. He conjures a Nova. So he cremates this planet. And then... Um, and then Dream conjures the universe. He's like, I am the universe, all things encompassing, all embracing. Choran's own counters with, counters with, I am anti-life, the beast of judgment. I am the dark at the end of everything, the end of the universe, God's worlds of everything. And what will you be then, Dream Lord? And Dream just says, I am hope. And then he goes, oh, um, then I, uh, I am, I don't know. 
So I guess he loses just like that. Um, he couldn't think of anything to counter hope. I guess that was the whole point of this thing. Um, so it's over. Dream wins. Dream gets his helms back, helm back, and uh, then uh, Turin Zone gets taken away um, by these two creatures, Agony and Ecstasy. He gets taken away. And so not only does he lose the thing, but I guess he gets to, has to be taken away in in chains and held or whatever. So he really he really lost everything today. That's for sure. Um, as Dream takes his helm back, he's talking to the Triumvirate, and they threaten to not let him leave. They're like, well, why do you think we're going to let you leave, Dream? You're in hell. And he's like, well, what if no one can even dream of a heaven? Then what would be the point of hell? Checkmate, bitches. And they're like, shit, he's right. All right, we need people to have dreams so they can dream of heaven so that when they come here, they're... They're, uh, you know, they're very upset and they, they get tortured by us and all that good stuff. So uh, at the end, Lucifer, as he's leaving, Lucifer vows to destroy Dream one day. And Neil Gaiman is planting a lot of seeds in these early stories for things that will come back uh, in later stories down the road. Uh, and then we see a little epilogue here where we see that uh, Dr. Destiny gets something delivered to him in the jail. Um, and it seems to be just some kind of weird eye. And that's all, all we know. And he says, it's just what I always wanted the and what do you think of Dream's visit to hell? Uh, I felt like it was an interesting take. I certainly found the the the, the whole I, okay. Sometimes the whole challenge motif is a little bit over overdone. I'm not really as impressed with this series as I thought I was going to be. Yeah, I can tell. I can tell by your tone. <laughs> <laughs> like, here's the thing. Like, I know what people are going to say. You're going to get people in the comments in the Second Brick Comics fan zone where you can argue with me uh, if, you, if you're one of our patrons. Uh, you're going to have people tell me, it's like, yeah, this is a beautiful series. You need to think about this and that. You're just not paying attention. And it's like... I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm 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 a dumb slow person. I don't appreciate it. I don't know. But it's like for me, it's like I I just kind of want it to kind of move on. This is one of those things, especially the challenge thing, where they're they're conjuring the different creatures. Like to me, that I, I will say, I enjoy this series mostly overall. But that one did feel a little like I'm just trying to be highbrow here. You know, it's like okay, this is this is actually kind of dumb. And if this is if this is how demons and otherworldly creatures actually settled things, that would be actually pretty retarded but he he writes it to like make it feel like it's kind of this this highbrow challenge like oh my god hope well you can't beat hope so i I think i was probably more impressed by this when i was like 16 like oh wow but now i'm kind of like nah all right it's kind of tropey you know yeah moving on to issue five the passengers this is where mike dringenberg takes over dringenberg it's hard to say dringenberg takes over after sam keith quit the book because he was having creative differences with Neil Gaiman. I, I will say, I like Sam Keith's art, but I can see how in certain areas it could be eh, somewhat confusing, sometimes a little inconsistent. And I do think this Sam Keith is not very different, but somewhat different than the Sam Keith that we see in the Max uh, three or four years later. I agree. That I love the art in the Max. Yeah. I think it's fantastic. So in this issue, finally, we get to see what the hell's going on with Dr. Destiny. Uh, so uh, he is basically, whatever this amulet thing, this weird eye thing was, uh, it gave us, it somehow gave him some power uh, to, to get out of his jail cell, steal a gun from this cop, uh, from the security guard, and uh, he is on his way, breaking out of Arkham, when he encounters this guy who is hanging uh, from the ceiling. He's like tied up in a straight jacket. Why is this guy tied up? Because he's so freaking dangerous because he is the scarecrow. We get to see the scarecrow and gross, creepy, withering away. Dr. Destiny uh, just kind of has a little chat with, with a scarecrow and it's not that important, but eh, it's fun to see the square scarecrow appear. I do feel now reading it back that they, they are almost overdoing the cameos from the DC universe. Like, Do you think that Neil Gaiman actually wanted that? That's a good question. 
Do you think this was him or do you think this was a DC thing? I do think he is very much influenced by Jack Kirby. Like I think the Sandman tie-ins and, and that stuff and the Etrigan stuff, I think that that feels like him, but there it's quite possible there was some level of DC editorial like, all right, if you're going to have this guy in Arkham, uh, you know, we got to see the Scarecrow or we got to see this character or, or maybe there there might have been some editorial push to include more DC characters because it seems it seems done so much more so than is necessary for the story. Um, you know, we didn't really need to have an appearance from the, from the Scarecrow here, but we do. So I think I think there must have been some kind. I, th- I don't know if it was directed by Neil Gaiman himself wanting to establish the character as as truly part of the DC universe or if DC editorials like, look, you got to tie this stuff in somehow. So we need you to have like XYZ characters appear. Who knows? Um, but basically, we learned that doc- from this conversation, we learned that Dr. Destiny is going after his his ruby. So this isn't the ruby. This is this other thing that was given to him, uh, delivered to him, I guess, by his mother through this security guard guy uh, that gives him some kind of power that helps him get out and go get his ruby. So uh, he comes now he has a gun, the gun that he stole from the and he's just this like naked, gray, disgusting creature. And he he climbs, jumps the fence, goes into the street, pulls over this car, jumps in, and he's like, he's so creepy, he's so gross looking. He's like, hello, I'm gonna find my my mat, my 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 ruby. You're gonna drive me. I'll I'll tell you where to stop with the, with this cute blonde chick. He's like, trust me, I'm a doctor, and takes off with this chick. We then see, for a second at this part of the book, I I was like, I started to have flashbacks to Ronan. Because before I realized what was going on here, there's this creepy, like, baby-looking creature. And it really kind of looked like the the Nugget the nugget Kid from, from Ronan. But it turns out, this baby, and it made more sense once I saw the, this granny character, this baby, once he wakes from his dream, it's not a baby. Who is it? It's Scott Free. It's Scott Free, Mr. Miracle. And he's having this crazy, wild dream. I don't know if he's having it because Sandman or if Sandman pulls him out of it. But basically, the, the, the baby is falling and he gets caught by Sandman. And then he wakes up from the dream and now it is adult real life scot free mr miracle you, you want to talk about a real jack kirby creation scot free is definitely one of the big ones that's what i'm saying i mean this is there's so much I, that's why i think at least this all these jack kirby characters this i think this is just neil gaiman because i know he was a he was a big fan of that jack kirby character and his when he first started conjuring up this series he was basing it on the, that sandman of the 70s from from jack kirby obviously he ended up that that was the original incarnation of it in his mind but obviously it went in very different directions uh with this character of dream but yeah ton, tons of kirby characters appearing here um and uh basically yeah and it's scot free uh then we go back and we see dr destiny driving with this uh chick and um this chick is like really freaking nice to him like she's being held hostage but he's naked and cold so she offers him a coat he's like got a, she's like oh i got a coat in the bag if you want to wear that he's like okay uh that's really nice he's like i'm sorry i didn't mean to scare you uh he's like she's like oh are you escaping from prison prison he's like no from arkham the madhouse she's like oh Oh, Jesus. But yeah, but she ends up offering him a coat and uh, continuing on this ride. So she's, she's really being nice for someone that's that's being held captive by this really creepy, um, you know, degenerating, gross, crypt keeper looking dude. Um, meanwhile, Sandman, he's basically told Scott Free the whole thing um, that he's looking for his ruby and he heard the justice. The League of Justice has it. Uh, so Scott Free is searching through all the old files and he learns that Dr. Destiny used to have this ruby and he used it, used it to drive people mad in their dreams. Um Meanwhile, Dr. Destiny is still driving with this chick and they're just chatting about the whole thing. And he and he learns that uh, he's like, oh, yeah, the Justice League, those bastards, they they took my ruby, blah, blah, blah. 
And uh, she tells Dr. Destiny, like, oh, no, it's the, it's the Justice League International now. So I guess at this time they were called the Justice League International, the JLI in this version. I believe this is, yeah, this is just post, this is just post-crisis right now. Yeah, in because Max Cord is sponsoring the Justice League International. Yeah, we see a knock on the door. Uh, as Scott Free and Dream have gone to wake up the Martian Manhunter. <laughs> um, and so we get another appearance here uh, from another character. And uh, Martian Manhunter tells them that this ruby is uh, in storage. And then uh, Sandman's like, cool, now that I know where it is. Uh, and, and by the way, like Sandman appears as this like crazy de- demonic like looking creature to him. Uh, and, and Martian Manhunter calls him Lord, Lord Zareel. Uh, he's like, Lord Zareel, I, I greet you humbly. And I guess I, I really like this because it's, it's because the mythology on Mars and, and with, um, well, Martian Manhunter, as we know from the justice league story, we looked at back, uh, sometime last year is not actually the last Martian alive, but he's the last green Martian alive. There's also the evil white Martians. We don't need to get into them today. Um, they turn into cows or something. It's a whole weird thing. It's like the scrolls turning into cows. Uh, no, they don't turn into cows. They just turn into other people, I think is what it is. And they're like trapped in, in human bodies, not knowing it. Something like that. Remember, buy your local meat locally. Um, and yeah, but I like that because the mythology is different on Mars, that he has a different name and he appears differently uh, to Martian Manhunter. So Scott Free sees him as Dream, as as we've been seeing him this whole time. Meanwhile, Martian Manhunter sees him as this Lord's a real, this creepy demonic, uh, this face. So I, I thought there was a nice little touch there. Um, and in the end, Dream takes off. And um, and they go off uh, and a Martian Manhunter and Scott Free go to eat Oreo cookies, which I, I thought was pretty funny, too. Um, <laughs> we, I, I like there's an interesting line here, too, um, that Dr. Destiny says uh, when he's still he's still. Um, all right, no, I think it is. Um, who is who does say this? I, I made it in my notes, but I'm not sure. Anyway, I don't even know who says it, but the quote is dreams are real, made of viewpoints, images of memories and puns and lost hope. I just like that quote. Um, Dr. Destiny is still in the car, still chatting with this chick, um, trying to get to where this ruby is. Meanwhile, dream. I like how dream travels now. Dream actually travels on the backs of dreams. Uh, so he's like riding on this, he's riding, he's taking a ride with this like pumpkin guy through one guy's dream. He's riding on this boat in this other dream. Uh, so he's like sort of physically traveling through our physical space, but doing so by sort of piggybacking on the dreams of other people. I find that pretty cool. Uh, eventually he finds, um, the, the Ruby in storage, um, but it uh, when he goes to get it, it just like blasts him and and fucks him up and he and he falls down. Um, and then we see Dr. Destiny going. Uh, he goes, he gets dropped off at this storage unit. And this poor chick, she was so freaking nice to him the whole time. He just shoots her right in the freaking face. So sad. Uh, and then he walks in. He's like, D, D, D. His name is John D, by the way, his real name. Uh, D, D, D. Hello, baby. And he sees the ruby picks it up. So whatever happened to this Ruby in all these years, it was with Dr. Destiny and and storage. Somehow it fucked up Sandman. So he somehow, he somehow altered, altered the nature of this thing so that Dr. Destiny can use it. But Sandman couldn't for some reason. Um, And that is the end of issue five. So uh, finally on this journey here, we're getting a multi-issue arc with Dr. Destiny. So uh, we will just jump right in to the next story. Oh, and at the end of this issue, uh, creepy ass Dr. Destiny, we just see him walking into this diner. Um, we go on to issue six called 24 hours. 
is where things start to get really crazy, Remzo. Um, this waitress is there. She's, and we learn this waitress, uh, you know, some of this stuff is unnecessary to the story, but it's kind of like character stuff. And this waitress like writes down the, the stories of all her customers. So, you know, she kind of fancies herself this writer. She's like, oh, everyone thinks I'm just a waitress. But they don't know. I'm just really, I'm just really a writer collecting stories. And the real problem with stories, you know, if you keep them, go- I like this quote too. If he says, if the, the real problem with stories, if you keep them going long enough, they all end in death. And that is a sad but true fact about every story at the end of the day. Um, and uh, yeah, she's kind of like, like we see that she knows different things about all the people that are in the diner. And then we see, you know, we see various, various people coming in. This guy comes to meet his wife. And then we see this crypt keeper looking motherfucker, Dr. Destiny, just hunched over in the corner. Um, he has hair now. He didn't have hair before. He's got, he really does look like the crypt keeper and he's wearing like a trench coat. And I don't even know how he's, how this guy is allowed in this diner. He looks so freaking creepy as fuck but i guess maybe it's his ruby there so he's got this like eye thing he got his covid vaccine he can go wherever he wants <laughs> he got his vaccine you can't keep him out and uh he's like look i got my card all right i don't care how i look i might be decaying in real time but please sir for the children put on a mask yeah and yeah uh, so now he's in the diner and weird things start to happen like he's he's watching tv like they're watching tv at one point and on the tv this guy is like it's like a kid's show this guy's playing with this dino puppet but then the guy takes a knife and like kill and like slices the throat of the puppet and then it goes beep please stand by and dr destiny just starts laughing and laughing and basically he's now he's now psychically held everyone in this diner hostage so we kind of just go through various hours here man that's why i never go to denny's no do not yeah I mean, I don't know. I think I'd rather be at this diner than a Denny's, to be honest with you right now. Have you seen some of the waitresses at Denny's? If you're going for a Grand Slam at four o'clock in the morning, you've got problems. You're basically Dr. Destiny at that point anyway. Uh, but yeah, basically everyone is losing their minds and and, and continuing to lose their shit. Uh, we get to uh, like hour 12 and this one chick is confessing to having fucked a corpse once. So I don't know if that's real or if it's just something that Dr. Destiny uh, is creating in, in her mind. They're they're carrying Dr. Destiny on their shoulders. He's got God written on his chest in blood. I mean, he is. Just, this is just a, a creepy, really scary character that I, I think in in. In other versions, other iterations of this character, I think he actually appeared in a, in a Batman uh, um, cartoon once as well. Um, he was kind of just really a cheesy villain who messes people's minds. This is like a horror villain. This is like this. This makes this feels like an Alan Moore type creation. I mean, this is a truly a horror, disgusting, vile, just ugh, character. Uh, eventually, there's an orgy behind the counter. I mean, crazy shit is going on. In hour fifteen, uh, he lets them. He actually gives their their minds back for a moment in hour fifteen, and then they're all screaming. They're like, "What are you doing to us? What's going on?" And then, of course, he puts them back into into the dream spell. This is basically an entire issue. This is like a. a it's like a. The, the movie saw like just like more and more disgusting stuff are they doing to each other because dr destiny is controlling their fate at one point uh the one uh the waitress chick is uh pounding a hammer pounding nails into this guy's hand um it's just getting exceedingly exceedingly gross and then into his eyes uh this one chick takes nails and shoves them into her own eyes um another guy uh, he bites his wife's throat out. I mean, Dr. Destiny is basically just, just torturing these people. And then, you know, he's got story time in hour 19. It says he lies to them to prove it's safe. I'll have the green side. You have the red half trusting the wicked queen. Snow white took a bite from the rosy red apple. It instantly fell dead as if she were dead. So he's telling these, <laughs> telling these uh, fairy tales here. And uh, it's just, it's just ultra creepy stuff going on. 
Um, and yeah, and then uh, yeah. So basically, at the end of like hour by hour twenty two, everyone is pretty much dead in some way, shape, or form. So when hour twenty three comes along, uh, Doctor Destiny is just kind of there, standing by himself with uh, with this ruby. He eats a fly, and then he's standing there just by himself when an hour twenty four. In walks Dream. So I guess it took Dream 24 hours to wake up from his stupor and walk back in. And he, he walks in and he's like, oh, hello. I'm glad you're here. I was starting to get a bit boring, but you don't look strong enough to even make it interesting, do you? And that's the end of this issue. What did you think of this freaking crazy issue that barely had Dream in it? It was just basically an, an issue long horror show. I feel like the last couple of issues were just filler. And now we're really getting into the meat of the story. And my one, and my yeah, one criticism the of the last couple issues where we had all the other heroes jump in. Well, I, you can tell when, and I'm not saying this is struggling per se, but you can tell when uh, a company is trying to launch a new character, what they do is they really try and pump him up by having him compare to other heroes to make him almost seem more legitimate. And I almost feel like that's unnecessary for, for Sandman. For, for Dream in this case, because if they just cut to the stuff that genuinely makes them unique and interesting, you don't need Martian Manhunter. You don't need Scott Free. You don't need any of these people. I almost feel like everything else is just kind of waiting. And now it's like, oh, now we're in the shit. Indeed. Yeah. And this is some way to find yourself in the shit with this absolute. Um, this is when the this is the one issue here where this goes from like, yeah, this is a comic that has some, you know, horror elements, fantasy elements, but this issue is, this is true horror. I feel, I feel like if you eliminate all the other like side characters and stuff, there's like the real like second or third issue is only where, where it really starts to yeah, matter. I, I can see that. Cause I mean, we spent so much time just reminding everyone that we're in the DC universe uh, prior to this. And I think, yeah, a lot of that could, may have been unnecessary. Like you could have told this story without those characters and it generally would have been the same. Like this would have been the same story without John Constantine, even without the justice league. Oh, you, you don't need any of them. Like really you, you, you don't, you really don't like, you know, and at least stick with the appropriate guys. Like it's a horror book sick of Constantine, like the Wesley Dodds thing. Yeah, that like makes that, sense. That, like that, that that's acceptable. Like that's fine. Even Etrigan, Etrigan made perfect sense being there. And but like the others, like when you start bringing new gods it, into this, it's like, come on. Yeah, I mean, Scott free was just there to look up some files on a computer. Like, <laughs> I don't know if we really needed that. But regardless, we move on to issue number seven. Uh, This one is called Sound and Fury. And for a few pages here, we're just getting various images of sort of horror and despair across the city uh, as various characters um, are kind of having these these nightmares of sorts. And Sandman asks him, he says, what what do you think you're doing? (laughs) And um Sandman is telling him, like, look, it, I don't know what, how, why you're doing it all, the, all this stuff with this ruby. Like, it, it was not made to do this. And he's actually really being pretty nice, just like this chick. Uh, he's being really nice here. He's just having a nice little chat with them. He, he sits down at the table, having a very rational, calm conversation about everything. Um, but the end, Dream is like, listen, I'm taking this fucker back. So he puts on his helm and he opens this portal. And um, basically, yeah, he basically invite, it brings Doctor Destiny into this into this dream realm. Uh, we go and see more sort of more to, more people having crazy dreams and such. And then Doctor Destiny is now in this dream world, and he has the ruby around his neck. But he's now like he's now like taking on the form of some Roman emperor or something. He seems like he's like Jul- oh yeah, he is actually Julius Caesar. They these these Asian ladies there are yelling Julius Caesar because this is a weird dream, and. Um, 
yeah, he's basically into this whole crazy dream reality. He sees a bunch of these uh, creatures with this dream helm on that are coming after him. They're saying, beware, beware the Ides of March. And uh, basically, Dream has just pulled him into this dream world because uh, that's the only way. He, he can't really battle him on the physical material plane because he's altered that ruby in such a way that it really seems to no longer work for Dream. Uh, but Dream has to figure out some way to, to stop this guy and, and stop this guy from doing what he's doing. Um, so basically, at the end, Destiny just destroys the ruby, um, thinking that that will kill Dream. And it, it seems to do that. He destroys the ruby, and uh, the, the Dream is uh, seemingly gone. Uh, and so Dr. Destiny is, is kind of celebrating. He thinks he's won the battle, but then he realizes that he's actually being held in the palm of Dream's hand. Uh, Dream, at the end of the day, takes him back to Arkham. Very nice of him. He could have you know, probably suffered, suffered him a worse fate. We also see again another appearance by the Scarecrow as Dream interacts with the Scarecrow again. Um, not for any much of any reason, again, except to again remind us that we are in the DC universe and that the Scarecrow is there. Um, at the end of the day, we see that John D has gone back to sleep. Dr. Destiny is sleeping again in Arkham Asylum and uh, he is sleeping once again without dreaming back to uh, back to the fate that he had been uh, issued by the Justice League. So what do you think of this? What do you think of this? This basically does wrap up this first story. I have one issue I'm going to talk about that, that technically completes the trade paperback. It's, it's kind of an addendum to introduce us to another character, but this this pretty much does wrap up the initial story of dream being captured, coming back into into the world 72 years later and having to go on this, this sort of hero's journey of sorts to collect all of the items that gave him power in the past. But uh, the, in the case of the Ruby, he actually doesn't get this back. He had this Ruby was actually destroyed. So he will not be at, at the sort of full power level that he was before. I feel like I really don't know much more about him now than in the first issue. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's journey. It's a journey right now. And I mean, we're, we're only covering the first volume of this. So, I mean, obviously more happens. I mean, I've read ahead on some of the stuff like it, I think it does pay off. I actually really do. But this is a slow burn. This is like an AMC TV show. It's the <laughs> Walking Dead season one, baby. Yeah, I know. That, that's absolutely the case with uh, Neil Gaiman's writing. I mean, he I, I don't know how much he planned this whole series out. The whole thing ends up going 75 issues, but a lot of stuff now this is not necessarily true of the random appearances from dc characters but a lot of little things that get planted uh like unity kincaid um stuff with lucifer these are definitely seeds for stories that are going to come out in later volumes uh so we move on to issue eight the end of the preludes and nocturnes a trade paperback this is called the sound of her wings and dream he is just chilling in a park feeding pigeons hanging out uh he catches this ball that this kid threw and this kid's like oh Oh, nice catch. He's like, what are you doing, man? He's like, oh, me? Uh, I'm just hanging out, feeding pigeons. He's like, oh, that's cool. And this chick walks up, this goth-looking chick walks up, sits down next to him, says, what are you doing? He says, same thing I told this kid, feeding the pigeons. He's like, oh, you do that too much. You know what you get? Fat pigeons. Haha, <laughs> that's a line from Mary Poppins. And she goes on talking about Mary Poppins, telling him about, about Mary Poppins, because I guess technically there were probably some silent movies before the time he was captured, but he really probably hasn't seen, he definitely hasn't seen Mary Poppins at this point. I don't think he's at the time. Um, yeah. So basically uh, they're, they're chatting and we learn that this is indeed death. This is who the, who Burgess in the very first issue was actually trying to conjure, trying to capture uh, with his spell. He's trying to capture death. Instead, he captured dream, which of course led to uh, this whole crazy situation. And Sandman just gives a whole recap about everything, about collecting all his shit, about the power of the Ruby um, going back into him. And death's like, 
cool. Are you finished? He's like, yeah. And then she just she just lays into him. She's like, you don't even give me a call. You've been back this whole time, going all all these adventures, collecting all your shit. You don't even let me know what's going on. Uh, so they're kind of like, you know, they're like siblings. You know, they're, they're sibling rivals here to, to an extent. Um, and basically, uh, they then disappear as this kid is confused. This kid, Franklin, is like talking to them. And he's like, what the fuck? He turns around and these guys have, have totally disappeared. And he's, they're like, yeah, see you later, Franklin. And he's like, how'd you? How'd you know I was Franklin? Um, they then go to visit. Basically, they're just hanging out. And uh, we kind of just travel through death, just going about her day, doing her death thing. And her death thing is that she goes and visits people that are about to die. And when they die, they kind of come out of their body. And they're like, oh, it's you. Oh, oh, you're death. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's basically what she does as they're kind of walking through, uh, you know, through different through the lives of different people, they go to this this old Jewish man, and um, you know, he's he's on his deathbed, and he says the Shema, this Jewish prayer, and uh, he leaves his body. He's like, oh, thank God, I said the prayer. I, I I get to go to heaven now, right? She's like, yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, come along with me. Ish, ish, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, very, very ish. She's like, yeah, 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 something like that. We'll see. Uh, they go to a comedy show and they see this uh, this comedian, the stand up comedian. She gets electrocuted by electrocuted by the microphone. Um, and the Sandman always hears like when someone dies, he he kind of keeps comments commenting that he hears uh, the wings when they depart. Then we get a really sad one when she goes and visits. They just walk into this room where there's just a crib, uh, a baby, and then we see the mother walk in and she just drops the bottle and she's just bawling because of course her her baby. Is is, uh, is dead here. Um, and every time again, he, uh, he, he hears the wings every time. So I guess these people are actually all going to heaven. It seems because they're, they're getting their wings and such. Um, and, um, yeah, we're just, we just basically get several pages of montage. This is basically just dream and, uh, dream and, um, and death catching up, uh, for pages and pages and pages of montage as they go through. And she, you know, helps guide people to the afterlife, I guess. Um, Sandman contemplates like, how they why they why do they fear her and they don't fear him he's like my realm is far more more terrifying which i i found pretty interesting and um they keep journeying through death all over um eventually they head back um to this kid franklin he chases the ball out into the street seemingly gets hit by a car and she screams hey franklin and uh he's like oh wow man that that car came out when i thought i was gone for sure he's like she's like that's what he thought huh He's like, hey, 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 it's you. Hey, you said you'd see me again soon. I didn't think you meant this soon. She's like, hold that thought, Franklin. She's like, hey, Dream, don't be a stranger, all right? And she's like, look, before you say anything else, you better come over here. There's something you maybe ought to see. So I think she's going to take him to go see his actual body because he, of course, did actually die, did actually get hit by a car. And he says, goodbye, sister. And basically, Dream goes back. He's playing with his his pouch of sand. And as we wrap up this issue, he's kind of thinking to himself. He's like, you know, I, I found the solace that I sought, though not in the way I imagined. From dreams, I conjure a handful of yellow grain. I throw the grain into the air and I hear it. The sound of wings. So I guess he's gotten a little inspiration by taking this journey with his sister, Death, um, seeing all these people go to the afterlife, get their wings. And I guess that somehow inspired him to the next chapter, which we're not going to get into today. But that wraps it up for Preludes and Nocturnes. Remzo, I already know you're probably going to score this lower than me based on our, our dialogue here. So why don't you go first? Is Dream a hero? I'm not sure he's a hero or not. a. I don't think he even fits into the category of hero or not hero. He's a he's a mythological creature. I would say neither good nor bad. He is. I, I like I like Neil Gaiman because he definitely makes you think with his stories. He definitely is is not uh, constrained by any one type of genre or common 
practice for how comic books were done back then. So I really do admire that. It's why I admire Alan Moore. It's why I admire Frank Miller. Um, I'm going to rank it low, but you know, I, I really feel like I have to emphasize it with this episode. It's subjective. It's just me. What I like, you might not like. Don't and yell what at you him, like, nerds. Yeah, like don't don't yell at me, bitches. Uh, All right, let's see I'm how low you go. Let's see if I have to yell at you or not. I'm giving the artwork a three and I'm going to give the story a three because uh-huh. I felt like, you know, for the artwork, I, this is not Sam Keith's best. I gave him a higher score when he did the max and I felt like the transition with the other artists was still actually pretty good, but it's just, it, 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 it it's not, it's not artwork. I, I'm really kind of clamoring for. So I'm going to give it a three because I admire it. And I do know the potential for later. I felt like the transitions were the hardest part. The, the actual renderings of certain characters were fine. It didn't bother me, but it's, it's the transitions for a lot of stuff. And then for the story, like this first volume, I must've gotten, I, I ironically, like I fell asleep a lot listening to the audiobook. but then I usually listen to audiobooks when, I, when I'm about to go to sleep. Um, I, I guess when you actually read it, uh, you, you, you begin to notice that stuff a lot more. So like with this one, I felt like, um, you know, with, with the story, it just, it just kind of dragged at times. And, uh, you know, like I said, I really don't feel like it really picks up until we see that Dr. Death, uh, you know, uh, crazy shit show at Denny's issue. Like that's where like for me, it's like, damn, this is where it really kicks off. So I'm going to give the story a three. I'm going to give a total score of a six out of 10. All right. All right. Well, um, I'm not going to go as low as you, although I will say I'm probably going to rate it lower than I thought I would have going in. And I, I do feel, I think your criticisms are, are valid. Like I, I'm not going to duck as much points off for them as, but I, I do appreciate the, this story. I do think the writing is, is very good overall. Like I said, Neil Gaiman is a writer and he wants you to know he's a writer and he's going to use the big words. I didn't read that much of the dialogue. I, I dipped in now and again, but there's a lot of words and you could argue whether they're necessary or not, but it's prose. It it is the style of this book. It is kind of, it is kind of like a novel that happens to be in picture form as well. So you kind of, I think that's why I enjoyed the audio book a lot. Yeah, that makes sense. That, that, and you had all those actors, you had James McAvoy and Kat Dennings and stuff. So, I mean, for me, it definitely kept more of my attention than this. Yeah, indeed. So, um, that being said, I, I, I'm, I am going to give the writing a four. I think it is very well written. Um, I, I, the reason it's not higher than a four is I, I, I do think that at times, especially reading through this, I think, you know, this was eight issues. It probably could have been six. You know, there, there's probably, there's times like this whole thing with death. I mean, this, when she, he goes through all the people with death at some point, I'm like, all right, I get the point. You know, you're, you're, we see the, we see the people dying and the, you know, they, they get their wings and we get it. Like it, it did seem to drag on a little bit. Uh, a lot of the montage stuff, like the stuff with Dr. Destiny. Although I, I really, I do think my favorite issue actually was that issue in the diner where we barely even saw a dream at all uh, was just that. Cause it just really felt like a, like a horror horror. It, it reminded me of the, of the church scene from Kingsman. Hmm. I did see Kingsman, but I can't quite recall R- that. Rem- scene. Remember where Colin Firth and the church get mind controlled into killing each other. Rem, so I think I was really high when I watched that movie. I'm going to be honest with you. You got to go back and watch it. All right. Fair enough. The church scene. I'll, I'll send you the link just to that scene. You're going to be like, oh yeah, it's kind of like this. Okay. Fair enough. But, um, I did enjoy it, but yeah, I think it can be overly verbose at times. Um, and it can, some things can drag out possibly a little more than they need to, but it overall, it takes itself too seriously. It does take itself very seriously. And there are some of those, eh, you know, like I'm just, I, I, I'm trying to be highbrow moments that impressed me more when I was a teenager reading it. And now I'm like, mm, all right, Neil game is just trying to be trying to act smart here, you know, but that being said, I'm still going to give the writing a four. I do think it is, it is very well done overall. Um, and the art, I'm going to give a little higher than you, 
I'm going to give it a 3.5. I think I really do like Sam Keith's art, even and particularly in this. Actually, I do enjoy his art as well. I didn't. I thought the transition to Mike Dringenberg was okay, but I I thought it was a little bit of a downgrade. Uh, I would probably give his art a three, Sam Keith's uh, a four. So I averaged them out to a 3.5. Uh, I I will say I do like Max Sam Keith art a lot better. Oh, it's so, it's so different. It's, well, it's I mean, very it's different. not, but it's improved. I mean, I don't think I realized this was the same artist until we until we did that Max uh, episode, and then I, I when I was doing the research for that, and I realized, oh yeah, he did, actually did Sandman. Because um, you you could easily, if you didn't know, you might not necessarily know. It, it, it's that it has that many differences. Although if you do know, you can tell. You know, it's it's kind of one of those things. Um, so I'll give the art a three point five. That brings me to a total of a seven point five. Uh, versus your 6.5, right? Was that right? 6.5? No, it's just a 6. Oh, you're just a 6. All right, 6. Yeah. So that's a total SBC score of 13.5, possibly lower than you might think the story would get. You might think uh, the acclaimed Neil Gaiman would get, but that's what he got. That's the SBC way. We do our thing. But we I would still say, thing. I would still say, despite Remzo's criticisms, um, I would still put this in the category of Regardless of score, this is kind of something to know about as a comic book fan. I, I would say no about it. Like whether you pick it up or not is entirely based off like, you know, the, the whim of your mood and stuff like that. But like you, you have to know it. Yeah. And you definitely, this is one of those things you got to be in the mood for it. You know, if you're in the mood for light reading, don't read this book, you know, read this book when you're in the mood for heavier reading, whether you love pink Floyd or not, <laughs> everyone needs to know a hole in the wall. That's a great analogy. This is kind of the pink Floyd. This is actually the pink Floyd of, of comics in a way. Yeah. I think that's a good analogy or the crystal meth of comics. As you said, last issue, stay away from crackheads. Issue, children. episode, issue, episode. I went almost two freaking hours just now. Not making that mistake, but I did it again, but it's all good. Wouldn't be SPC. Give yourself a pat on the back. Uh, that being said, uh, that does it for tonight's episode. So, Ramzo, any notes? Anything you want to wrap up before I myself fade off into the dreamscape? Remember, folks, you can go ahead and get our full back catalog wherever you're listening to the show right now on your favorite podcatcher app, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you're listening to us across the dreamscape that is the internet. Make sure you always go ahead and check out secondbrickcomics.com. And if you need more from Mark and I and friends, this week we've got more Remso rants. We've got um, another recap coming for this week's episode of What If? and so much more so please go ahead support the show keep us living and off the treats to become crackheads at patreon.com slash second print pod mark that's all i got indeed and if you're a cheapskate but you still like us one thing you could do you could leave us a five-star rating and a great review on Apple Podcasts. You can leave us a great rating and a review anywhere you can, but Apple Podcasts still does dominate the market. So those reviews, those five-star ratings that you guys have been giving us, they really do wonders to help boost us in the algorithm rhythms, boost us in the search results, get more earbuds on this little project called Second Print Comics, and we do really do appreciate it. Again, we do this show uh, because we love comics, and we love introducing people to comics. We love talking about comics because in this dark day, in this day and age we live in, when there's so much turmoil, you got pandemics, you have uh, revolutions, upheavals, civil wars, this sort of thing. What can bring us together more than great stories? And uh, that's what we know. Sometimes they're great, sometimes they're not, but they're stories nonetheless. So we try to bring those to you and, and try to you know, shine a little light on the world, read comics and change the world, if you will. So with that being said, I mean, I already gave it away, but Ramzo, but what else? What do we, what do we want to tell them on the way out? Change the comics. Read the world. There you go. America, good night. Dios. Uh.
Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading to the airport, right? Yep, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra $0.25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a $0.25 cents a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.